0: Amen. I'm Kenny White. I get to be the campus pastor here, and uh, I want to welcome you to a new series that we're beginning today. Uh, that that series is God Wrote a Book, and uh, you, you've kind of noticed already that there's sort of a stripped-down approach that we're taking today that's very purposeful because we really want to get to the, the essence, the bottom line of what we believe and why we believe that. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to have Rick Allen come out and join us. Rick Allen is an apologist. He's uh, been trained by cross-examined uh, academy and uh, endorsed by national apologists. And you might be saying, well, what what is an apologist again? Uh, it's not someone who asks for forgiveness. For their faith. That's not what it is. That's not what an apologist does. But an apologist, rather, is uh, someone who can defend their faith. Why they believe what they believe. But you're going to find out that this is not the place that Rick began. Uh, He's been a skeptic for his whole life. And you're going to hear a little bit about what it took for a skeptic and atheist to find Christ and follow him. And so, uh, Rick, you'll also see him around here. Uh, He serves at the church, is a fixture here. He and his wife Peggy, uh, you'll get to see them around and I would encourage you to connect with them when you can. They are incredible assets and beautiful people. Without further ado, would you join me as we welcome Rick Allen? Good morning.
1: First service was better. Good morning. Good
2: morning. It really was.
1: Thank you. Well, I would like to invite you to travel back with me in time to the year 2003. And if you had asked me in 2003, I would have told you I was an atheist, that I didn't believe in God. Now, I wasn't totally really strong about it, but that was what I would answer. I'm an atheist, so, as an atheist, I rarely have ever went to church. Why would you, right? But it was about that time, 2003, when I started attending regularly. And I brought proof, because that's me in the back row. I love the back row. That's my wife. You see, I was only attending church to support her. Because she was moving in one direction towards God and Jesus, and, and I was moving in another And I wasn't happy about it. When I was in church, I usually wasn't paying attention all that much, to be honest. But if I was paying attention, that's when I'd be thinking things like, this is all made up. It's wishful thinking. It's a fairy tale. Actually, a lot of times, I was repulsed by it. Now, there were times I went without my wife. And you have to ask the question, why would an atheist go to church without anyone? Why would they go alone? It's a good question. I have twins, a boy and a girl, William and Nicole. They were two years old at this time and and cute, love them to death, right? But as you can imagine, twins at two years old, they can be quite a handful. And if Peggy, my wife, if she's out of town, I had sole responsibility of them. By Sunday, I needed a break and there's free childcare back there. (laughs) two services. Why not? <laughs> okay, fast forward 5 years. My kids are 7 years old now. It's 2008. And I had a problem. I had to teach them right from wrong. They're going to be teenagers soon. I had to teach them good morals. And here's the problem. Now we're going to take the clock. We're going to go back quite a ways to 1989 you're going to see some pictures of me as a teenager. Mr. Anti-Authority. I used alcohol, I used drugs, and I used girls, and I have a lot of regrets. Here was the scary realization. I had to protect my kids from me. So what was I going to do? Whose morals was I going to use? If I use people's morals, well, that's just their opinion. And there's lots of opinions, I'm sure you're aware. Well, it dawned on me, I've been going to church now for for a few years and hearing this Jesus and the Bible and, and, well, wow. If he was truly God, then that would be an objective moral standard. And it seemed like a good moral standard, but I didn't believe it. And I'm a skeptic. I've been my whole life. I question everything. Well, as it turns out, almost everything, because I never questioned my worldview. I never questioned what I believed about atheism. And that's what led me on a multi-year journey and it's what I now call a skeptics journey to find evidence and decide what the truth is. So today, I'm going to share some evidence I found for the Bible. Why is the Bible a book like no other? We are going to look at the Bible, if, if it's authentic or not. And what I mean by that is when we, when we take a Bible like this, how sure are we that this is actually what the writers wrote? How authentic is it? And then, is it a true story? Is it more fact than fiction? That's what we're going to look at today. Specifically, we're going to talk about the New Testament which 27 books, history books, I didn't really know that, that there are history books in themselves. They can each be tested. And we'll focus even more probably on the Gospels. So I thought the Bible was like the telephone game. Right? You say something, you whisper it, you whisper it down the line, and at the last, the story is totally different. This book is 2,000 years old. This has got to be the telephone game. Well, what can we look at? What, can we, what evidence can we look at to decide if that's true or not? Besides just, that's what I think. So a book gets written. Say it's the book of Luke. And that's of course, is handwritten back, back in the first century. So that's your first book. And then some copies get made. These are called manuscripts because they're hand-copied. It's the only way you could do it back then. And some more manuscripts get copied... And that happens all the way until the 1400s A.D. That's when the printing press was invented. Okay, so now copies can be made automatically, and we don't have to manually copy them anymore. Unfortunately, we've lost the original, right? It's written on fragile material, papyrus or parchment or something like that. There's fires. Uh, It's easily lost. And a bunch of copies, early copies we've lost too. We just don't have them. There is a discipline both art and science kind of go together in something called textual criticism. And it's exactly what this looks at. It looks at how authentic is a book to the original. And it's important to note, it was important for me for sure, that this isn't, about, isn't just about the Bible. Any ancient book, this same discipline is used for. From Socrates to Plato to Josephus, That's what they use, this discipline. And it looks at three things. The first thing is, how many copies exist? How many manuscripts do we have? Now, the Bible has many. And that's all I'm going to say, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The second thing it looks at is, how large is the time gap? The shorter the time gap we have, in other words, the closer the manuscripts are to when the original was written, the better. The Bible is very short. So why did I gloss over those? Because as a skeptic, they really didn't mean much to me. They were just numbers. Turns out it's really good evidence if you're open to it, but it just didn't mean much to me, so I I don't talk about it very much in my shorter talks. My problem was with the differences. I mean, did you know that there's differences in the manuscripts? Lots of differences. We're talking about one book here. So if we look at the book of Luke and all these manuscripts of Luke, There's differences, and that bugged me, right? I thought that was evidence, a lot of differences. This is Bart Ehrman. He is a New Testament scholar. He devotes his light to textual criticism in the New Testament. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, and in that book, he talks about the inconsistencies. Listen to what he says. There are more differences amongst our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's over 180,000 differences. That's startling, powerful, and as a skeptic or an atheist, kind of on your side, right? It turns out that there's a third criteria, and the criteria is how significant are the differences. If you look closely, though, It's not, are there differences? That is what Barth is calling out, that there's differences. It's how significant are those differences? That's what the discipline looks at. This is Bruce Metzger. He is also a New Testament scholar, also has the same degrees as Barth. As a matter of fact, he was Barth's professor. Barth respects him. Calls him a second father figure. He has passed away. They were both Christians. Bruce was a Christian till his death. Bart has become an atheist. Mainly over evil and suffering. Not so much the Bible, but he has problems with the Bible, and he is still a New Testament scholar. Why do I bring this up? Because if you dig a bit, and you look in the appendix of that book, you'll see this. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Bruce Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variants. I'd like to give you an analogy. It's a law enforcement analogy. I was Reserve Sheriff Deputy for Scott County for about 10 years, learned a lot about law, and it just really resonates with me. Uh, so this analogy is we have someone on the ground, they were shot. Okay, they need medical help. So the paramedics are going to rush in. And they're going to do CPR. They're going to do whatever they need to do. They're not going to be neat about it. Right? They're going to push, potentially, some evidence away. They're going to push things out of the way. They're going to leave a mess. Well, when the investigator comes in and sees the crime scene and all the mess, he's not going to say, I can't use any of this. It's a mess. He's going to take care to take away the artifacts that don't belong to find the evidence. That's what this discipline does. The same thing, across all those copies, it looks for the artifacts that don't belong to get to the core stuff. As a matter of fact, only 1% of those differences affect any meaning at all, and as Bart is saying right here, none of them affect the core Christian doctrine. So we do have a good evidence scene. And textual criticism says we have thousands of copies, we have a short time gap, and we have insignificant differences. So this discipline tells us, this is some evidence that tells us the Bible is authentic. And then I had an aha moment. We've all had those, right? Science has actually done studies, and your brain lights up when you have an aha moment. And it was around this stuff, this inconsistency problem. And I thought about it and I said, well, if I just imagine that a scribe copied something wrong here or entered a new story or embellished something and a different scribe did that here and a different scribe did that here, well, here's the problem. What I thought about is by the time you get to the end, you should have wildly different stories like the telephone game. But we don't have that. It's actually very consistent. The stories are very consistent. All right. Now, I've been talking about textual criticism for a little bit here. It's a lot of numbers. I like to sprinkle in some humor. Um, so I'm going to try that here. First service did really well. so We'll see how you guys do. Just throwing some jokes out here. And then actually, the jokes will lead me into my next section. So what did one eye say to the other eye? Between you and me, something smells. If you see a crime at an Apple store, does that make you an eyewitness? <laughs> okay, a little lame, but but the eyewitness is what leads me into the next section. This is J. Warner Wallace. He's a cold case detective. He's been solving some of the toughest, hardest cold cases for years. He's been on Dateline many times, so he's somewhat famous. He used to be an atheist, a strong atheist. And he would ridicule his fellow Christian officers. And he would laugh at the Christians in his back seat that he's taking to jail. Well, he was in church one day, kind of like myself. He was there to support his wife. And the pastor said, Jesus is the smartest man that ever lived. That piqued his, that piqued his interest. So he went out, bought his first Bible ever, started going through the Bible, figured he'll use his cold case skills. So those are, you know, cold cases. Events are in the distant past. There's no eye-living eyewitnesses. There's little, if any, forensic evidence anymore. It's like, well, I'll use those skills against Christianity. He ended up writing a book, his first book, Cold Case Christianity, because he became a Christian after putting those tests to the Bible. And this book, during my journey, was a game-changer for me. Because in it, First of all, it's all law enforcement analogies, which is wonderful. Uh, but, But he talks about how the first disciples were eyewitnesses. I hadn't caught that before. That they were believing what they believed, not on faith, but on what they say they saw. That was a big difference. We'll use eyewitness testimony in a court of law. We'll convict people to jail, to death sometimes, based on what people say they saw. And there's no doubt that they claim to be eyewitnesses. Now, we can test that claim, but that's what they claimed. They've seen, they've heard, they've looked, they've touched. Very, very plain as day that that's what they say. Earlier, I was talking about the inconsistencies of a book, those those inconsistencies. Now I want to turn my attention to the inconsistencies across the books. So Luke will tell a story one way, John will tell a story another way, or not at all, or embellish it, or do whatever... And that, this really bugged me more than the other one. Because I'm like, these are, if these are eyewitnesses, they'd get their story right, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they be the same? Well, it didn't bug J. Warner Wallace. And I'm going to show a short video where he says why it didn't bug him. On the differences I saw between accounts. That didn't bother me. I had other issues, but that wasn't one of them. And I'll tell you why, because by this time at 35, I had been working multiple eyewitness accounts for nearly a decade. And I realized early on that no two eyewitnesses ever agree, ever. It could happen, it could happen right now. It could happen while we're uh, creating this tape. And do you know that you'll get two witnesses who'll disagree about what happened five minutes ago? This happens all the time. There's variation between the resurrection accounts, absolutely. And that gave me great confidence, because it's exactly the kind of variation I would expect to see if the resurrection accounts are real eyewitness accounts. And yes, they vary exactly to the degree I would expect them to. Each author is writing to a different group of people for a different purpose. Mark is writing to the Romans. It's an action-packed. Matthew writes to the Jews. Luke is writing to the Greeks. John's writing to unbelievers. So, of course, they're going to tell the story a bit differently. They're going to highlight different things because they're trying to reach a different audience. It turns out that inconsistencies actually point to true eyewitness testimony. Quick summary of what I found, looking at the authenticity of the Bible, that there's many manuscripts, thousands of them, many more than other ancient literature. There's a short time gap. There's insignificant differences, and we have eyewitness testimony. And you'll notice probably that there's some numbers missing there, and that's because there's other evidence to look at that we won't have time to look at today. But during that gap, when we don't have any manuscripts, we have other writings of the early disciples, so we can look at those. We have evidence that the resurrection itself is a very early belief. It didn't grow over time. There's even some anti Christians who say it goes back to weeks after the event. And finally, we have meticulous scribes. There's evidence outside of the Bible of other manuscripts that were meticulously copied. But is it true? That's the second thing I want to talk about. Because they could have made it up from the beginning. All I've really tested so far is that this is what they wrote from the beginning but what can I look at as a skeptic to see if this book is true or not? Is it fiction? Made-up places, made-up people, and vague details, right? Or is it nonfiction? Is it a true story, which would have elements of real people, real places, and explicit details? It's actually not that hard of a test, and we can go look at the evidence. Archaeology confirms real places. These archaeology ones are actually... Uh, elements that critics says the Bible got wrong until they found the archaeological evidence to say, nope, the Bible's right. We'll look at three of them. One is Luke uses this as the term called polytarchs as the title for a leader, and, and critics were adamant. There's no other writings anywhere. This, this, it just has to be wrong. Well, in 19, 1876, they found this inscription on a stone that talked about the polytarchs. And since then, they've found 64 more references. Pontius Pilate. Did you know there's no writings of Pontius Pilate? There was no evidence of Pontius Pilate, archaeologically wise, until 1961. Then they found a stone that named not only Pontius Pilate, but it named Tiberius, which is the correct ruler for the time. In 1968, they found a a ring, but they didn't know what it was. Until advanced technology came out very recently, 2018, that let them decipher that this actually is a pilot ring. It says pilot on it. And last, this one's really interesting. This is a crucifixion bone. It's an ankle bone with the nail through it. You can see the nail is bent. So it's probably why they didn't take the nail out, left it in. So they found this in 1968. This was the first archaeological evidence of crucifixion. But what's even more interesting is where they found it. So they found it in a tomb with two chambers and 12 burial niches. And why is that significant? Because that's the Jesus story. It was someone who was crucified given a proper Jewish burial. So it's estimated, believe it or not, that only 20% of the Holy Land has been excavated. Everything else is built on top of the things, and they can't get to it. Can you imagine what else they could find? Craig Evans, he said in a podcast regarding this evidence that nothing has been found, archaeologically wise, that contradicts what the Gospels say. So the Bible has real places. We can check that box off. And we can talk about real people. Well, as you might imagine, the Bible names real people all over the place. Not only real people, but they'll be qualified with their title and where they're from. This is 15 verses. I'm not going to read it. You okay? 15 verses from from the Romans. And in these 15 verses, there are 27 names. If I was to say to you that um, John went to the store, you might have to ask me, what John are you talking about? There's a lot of Johns. It's a common name. Same thing holds true in the first century. There are some common names. What do you see on these common names? Jesus and Simon are two examples of common names. And you'll see them qualified because they're common. Which Jesus am I talking about? Which Simon am I talking about? Those are details. That's not vagueness. So we can check the box of real people. Lots of real people named, again, titles, where they're from. Let's look at the explicit details. Is it vague stories or is it explicit? This is a map of Paul and Luke's journey by ship from Caesarea to Rome. How do you think they made this map? How did they draw the map? Well, the reason they can draw the map is because Luke was so meticulous in his writings. He tells where they went and where they stopped. He even tells where they stopped because of the prevailing winds at the time. I found this pretty interesting. We're going to unpack a little story that happened on this trip, a shipwreck. And he says, this is Luke's." he's saying on the ship that the sailors suspected they were nearing land. okay. Why were they suspecting it? A little earlier, he says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. So, we can glean from that that it was dark. It was midnight. They couldn't see the land. They could only suspect it, probably because of the waves they could hear on the shore. He goes on to say, they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That means 120 feet deep. They went a little further, Took another sounding, 90 feet deep. Another sign they're getting closer to shore, right? So they let down four anchors, so they stayed there for the night, and then the next day they cast those anchors off because they're going into shore. Well, they found four anchors in 90 feet of water, about 40 yards apart, in a route matching this. Unfortunately, it'd be really cool to show, show it, Two of them, they didn't know what they have and they melted them down. Third one got lost. The fourth one is still available by a private party and they did allow them to inspect it and it does date to the first century. So we don't have all four. We can't conclude it positively, but it's pretty good evidence. It's very interesting. He goes on to say 276 people. You'd expect 200, 300. 276 is pretty darn explicit. He goes on with timelines. Three months, three days, one day, second day, seven days. Precise timelines. This is three verses from the book of Acts. And he names 11 nations and six nationalities. Both Luke and John report medical conditions. Though they didn't know it at the time. Luke says his sweat... Became like drops of blood. It's kind of odd. John says that the spear, out came blood and water. Water's kind of odd. And the early disciples, they struggled with this. They thought, well, maybe it was symbolic. Maybe it was allegory. We don't know. A couple interesting things there. They didn't change it. Even though they didn't understand it. This is what the eyewitnesses said. This is what we're going to keep. Medical advances have happened. Today, we now know that these are actual medical conditions, that you can sweat blood and water can come out of your lungs. Luke and John, they were just eyewitnesses reporting what they saw. They didn't know this was even possible medically. You have obscure little things that you can find. Here's a couple of verses. It says the Passover festival was near. They sat down in green grass. There's plenty of grass. And and there's five barley loaves. So you can kind of put some things together there. Because Passover, first of all, it's a real event. It's it's nonfiction. It's a real event. And it's after the rainy season. So after five months of rain, there's a lot of grass. Plenty of green grass. And it's after the barley season. So there's a lot of barley available, too. The writers, lots of geography. Lots of cities. Islands, plateaus, water, elevation up and down. And they don't shy away from the geography. And you know what? It's really hard to fake geography. Either you get it right or you don't. Government rules. They talk about how the government, how the Roman government works, how you can invoke your citizenship, things like that. Plants and animals. Did you know that the sycamore tree, the fig tree, it only grows in South Africa and Israel? And back then, they don't have computers and things like that. You had to live somewhere to know what the plants were. So it's from one of those two regions. And animals, same thing, get the animals right. Buildings, the structure of the buildings themselves are in these books. And the customs, we talked about Passover, but purity, and the Sabbath are all in these these books. This is Sir William Ramsey. During his time, he was one of the greatest archaeologists that lived. He believed that the New Testament was written in the 200s. He didn't believe in the stories. He became an archaeology, he said, partly to refute Luke. He ended up reversing his entire view on the Bible. And he says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. He went on to shock the intellectual world by converting to Christianity. Luke actually gets 95 people, 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. So based on this evidence... I concluded I had to. The Bible is a work of nonfiction. When I started my journey, I didn't start with Christianity. I started with God. Because if there's no God, then why would I look at any religion? Well, what I found was a lot of evidence. And that evidence needed an explanation. And there's only two explanations. Either atheism is true, which means nature and materials needs to explain this evidence, or there's a God, there's a creator. That makes more sense. Which one makes more sense? Well, what I found, what I felt, was that the atheist view had inadequate explanations. It didn't explain well the DNA that's in our body, the machines that are in our body, the origin of life, the Big Bang, the laws of nature, fine-tuning of our world, about the supernatural, morals, the afterlife, near-death experiences, consciousness, conscience, art, beauty, music, all those things that can't be explained by materials. And evil and suffering, which I personally believe, looking at it, that God is a better explanation than atheism. So the way I like to say it, because it wasn't like a huge event for me or anything, is is I just, I had to change paths. Because the trail I'd been on about atheism, it just kind of ended. It wasn't good. The Bible, we've been talking about uh, authentic and the facts, but as you might imagine, it's just the tip of the iceberg in the evidence I found, again, that needed an explanation. Either Christianity is true or it's not. So after evaluating all this, after a few years, I had to decide. Do I give in? Do I become a Christian? That is a hard choice. It's a lot easier to say I believe in God. Now I have to change my behavior. I have to change what I think. I have to love my neighbors. I have to love people I don't really want to love. That's hard. But I have another stumbling block, another problem that kind of prevented me, held me back. And it's a fear. And I'm gonna share with you what that fear is, but first, for fun, I'm gonna share some other fears that are real. There is a fear of chins. People are scared of chins. Genophobia. There is the fear of the color yellow. That's a weird fear. Xanophobia, I think it says. Now here's the funny one, even more funny, I guess. Believe it or not, this is true. There is a fear of ketchup. People are scared of ketchup. I'm not going to pronounce that, I'm not even going to try. But my fear is real too, and it's the fear of being wrong. And it's a fear I have with everything. I don't even like to purchase anything because the next day it might be on sale. It just kind of paralyzes me in a lot of ways. I'm a big second guesser. So, what was I going to do? How am I going to get past this stumbling block? That's what it felt like. How am I going to give in? Well, I decided to return to law enforcement, and I thought about it, and I said, well, I'm essentially a juror on a trial here. If you are a juror on a trial, you have a bunch of evidence that both sides have access to. Prosecutor, defense attorney, they give their explanations. You decide which one you think is best. So, I looked at jury instructions. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. So I don't have to be on all possible doubt, just a reasonable one. And if you are convinced beyond that reasonable doubt the defendant's guilty, it's your duty to find the defendant guilty. So, if I am convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true and I felt it was my duty to find Christianity true. Recall that my journey started back in 2008. I needed a moral standard. In 2011, I was baptized, and I was all in. I cleaned up my playlists. I cleaned up my language. I cleaned up my library. I cleaned up my thoughts, tried to be a better person the best I could. But unfortunately, 2015, that fear, it gripped me again, though I kept it Pretty much a secret. I didn't want to be wrong. Now I'm surrounded by Christians. Did I give atheism a fair shot? So I went back. And I started researching again. And I was listening to podcasts and I was listening to debates. And you get to the point, you've probably all been there, where you're like, you know what? I've heard that. I've heard that. I've, you know what? I've just heard all these things. I'm not learning anything new. So I ended up back in the same place where I started. But the best explanation for the evidence is that Christianity is true. So I'd like to thank you today. Um, If you had asked me back in 2003 if I'd be on a stage defending Christianity, I would have said you're crazy. So God does a lot of crazy things, and this is one of them. Um, A lot of my speaking engagements I get by referrals and by word of mouth. So I'm bringing that up, because if you know anyone, organizations or whatever, that be interested in the speaker, I'd appreciate you passing that along. There are flyers out back if you want to pick something up to hand out. Um, so that's my talking with that. I'm going to hand it back over to Joel.
2: Thank you, Rick. Pastor Kenny and I were backstage for a moment, and we saw the ketchup come on screen. And uh, you all know how people from Chicago love mustard, right? Someone here on staff talks about it named Pastor Jason. Uh, he's a he's a ketchup chicken. <laughs> he's afraid of ketchup. We figured it out. Oh, man. Meuselophobia. Yes. That was great. Thank you, Rick. So good. In a few moments, Pastor Kenny's going to come back out, and uh, he'll lead us in communion. And he's actually going to lead us in reading the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, But before we do that, I'd like to introduce communion. Uh, Friendship, everyone is welcome to participate in communion so long as you uh, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so as we sing this next song, go ahead and make your way to the tables dispersed throughout the room, and you can grab the communion elements and hold on to them at your seats. Uh, but yeah, so Rick has just given us a lot to think about when it comes to the Bible and God and his word. And this new song that we're going to sing here, uh, it helps us to affirm our Christian beliefs, and it's closely closely related to the Apostles' Creed that we're going to read in a bit. So as you prepare your hearts for communion, listen to these words. If you can pick up on the song, sing it, and uh, just prepare your heart for the time of communion that